So think with me for a moment, what is the definition of the word integrity? The definition of the word integrity. According to one definition, it is the practice of being honest and showing a consistent and uncompromising adherence to strong moral principles. In other words, it's being someone of consistency. I'm going to fight with my mic all morning. I can just see that right now. I'm going to win. It is someone who is consistent, and basically what they say is what they do. What they say they believe, they actually believe. And here's the defining factor. You're like that all the time. Not just sometimes. If you're a person of integrity, you are the same way all the time. To have integrity is to be consistent at all times, is to be true, is to be legit, is to be faithful, is to be honest, is to be authentic, is to be real, no matter what is going on around you. And then we, we overlay that, the concept of us as Christians. What is, what is spiritual integrity? As Christians, how do we display integrity as disciples of Jesus Christ? How do we do that? I'm glad you asked that because that's what David is going to tell us today. So if you're not in Psalm 41, that's where we're going to be last week, Psalm 40, a famous psalm where we learned about God reaching down, pulling us out of the muck and the mire, and we should testify of this deliverance to others. Not only that, but the, the, time, the next time we are stuck in the mud, we should continue to call on God as our only Savior. God is faithful. He has delivered us. And he will continue to deliver us. This week, we're at Psalm 41. The last one, you might see that Psalm 42 in your Bible starts a new book. They're just divided up into books. So this is the last one in this kind of series in book one. But it's also the last one in these, these Psalms that we've been looking at lately with a common purpose. And the common purpose is this. The consequences of sin and God's discipline for us, for the sin that we have. And God's grace in the midst of that discipline. We saw that in Psalm 38 and 39 and Psalm 40, and we see it again in Psalm 41. Look with me again at Psalm 41. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. You might immediately note that these verses are in the third person. And David speaks of the one, he speaks of he, he speaks of him. It appears that David is doing some self-encouragement here. David's reminding himself of the characteristics of the grace and the mercy that God has, specifically on the weak, specifically on the poor, the helpless. David is gaining his hope from this, knowing that he was such a person. David, the greatest king of Israel, as Paul reminded us when he prayed a few moments ago, this was David. David is this guy. David's the guy that showed grace to the poor. David is the one who recognized the marginalized. David is the one who helped them. And so he's taking encouragement in this because as we'll see in a few moments, now David is the one who is poor in spirit again. We have to kind of stop ourselves from thinking right away when we see the word poor just to think of financial poverty. It's not merely financial poverty. It could be poor in spirit as well. 
But David makes it clear in verse 1. He says, blessed or happy is the one who considers the poor. As we'll see in context, this doesn't just mean, again, the poor people financially, but those who are crushed, helpless, under the weight of their own sin. When David says that you'll be blessed if you have mercy on someone who is beaten down in the day of trouble. God will deliver you because you helped someone else when they were crushed. God will bless you, protect you. God will keep you alive. The Lord will sustain you when it's your turn on your sickbed, and he will restore you and heal you from your illness. And here we see that this is David himself. David himself is on his sickbed, whether physically or probably more accurately emotionally or psychologically. David is once again crushed under the weight of his own sin, or maybe more accurately, crushed under the weight of God's discipline for his sin. The Lord will sustain me, he says, because I am like one of those people who care for the poor. And now it's my turn to be cared for. David said, I've been the one to show mercy to others when they're downtrodden, when they're sick, when they're poor in spirits. And now the Lord will have mercy on me because I am that way. So here's a quick point. God is gracious to those who are gracious to others. God is gracious to those who are gracious to others. Now, this whole kind of psalm, we have to be careful in situations like this that we don't reduce this to a formula, right? We can't manipulate the Almighty God, and we can't say that, okay, so this is the golden rule, so it's not if I show mercy to someone, then God, you owe me one. Just remember that, God. I'm going to cash that in sometime when I need it. That's not how this works. We're not, we're not gaining credits with the man upstairs if we help somebody. It's a principle that God will show grace to those who show grace to others. And we can never manipulate God. We can never reduce the Almighty God just to a formula. However, we can see clearly that this is rather a reflection of who God is. It's a reflection of God's character. God is merciful. God is gracious. Exodus among many other places in Scripture, it makes this very, very clear. Exodus 34, when Moses has to get revised tablets because he smashed the first ones. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is merciful and gracious. But here's something else we have to remember about God. All of God's attributes, they're the definition. We are the derivative. What I mean by that is when we talk about God having mercy and grace, God is the definition of mercy and grace. We, when we show mercy and grace, we only know that it's full of mercy and full of grace because it's like God. He is the definition of his attributes. Anything we can show is just derivative of that. He is the definition of love. He is the definition of kindness. He's the definition of grace. He's the definition of mercy. And we are, as God's children, called to be like God. So therefore, we display those things like he is. But of course, we're human beings, so we're not going to do that perfectly, right? We are going to fail. He is perfect in all of those things. We are not. 
we as God's children are called to imitate him. We're not going to do it perfectly. We don't emulate his attributes then to actually get in the position of God owing us one either. We've got to remember that. Because we have to back way up and realize that God has already been merciful and gracious to us. Right? So how can we possibly say, okay, so I was merciful and gracious to somebody, so then God needs to be merciful and gracious to me. Okay, hold on. We're not talking about right now. Let's back way up and see how God has been merciful and gracious to you. First of all, you're breathing. You exist. You're breathing God's air. You're living on his earth. There's a heart that's in your chest that beats in perfect rhythm. We have sunshine. We have all of the the common graces of all humanity. We have puppies and babies and relationships and food and all of that. God has been merciful and gracious to every single one of us already. We exist. So let's start there. And second of all, if we are in Christ Jesus, right now there's special mercy and grace to those who are in Christ Jesus. If we, are, if we have come to understand the gospel and we've turned from our sins and we've consciously put our faith in Christ Jesus, then we are the beneficiaries of now unlimited mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we're no longer under his wrath. We're under his grace. We're no longer destined to hell. We're destined to eternity with him. We are no longer his enemy. We're his friend. We're adopted into his family through the sacrifice of his son. So Christians, church, before we start thinking about how much God owes us because we may or may not have been merciful and kind and gracious to someone, let's remember how overwhelmingly gracious and kind God has been to us. It is never going to be that we can manipulate it, but we emulate him. And God is gracious to those who are gracious to others. And so when we're in that trial, church, when we're in that hardship and we're asking God, hey God, what have you done for me lately? Look back and see what God has done for you in history. Look back to see what God has already done for you. Trials and adversity and hardship are not fun, church, but they're necessary. They're very necessary. David is still in one. God is at work. And David knows that. Our friend John Calvin says it this way, God, for various reasons, tries the faithful by adversities, at one time to train them in patience, at another to subdue the sinful affections of the flesh, at another to cleanse, and as it were, to purify them from the remaining desires of the flesh, which still dwell within them, sometimes to humble them, sometimes to make them an example to others, and at other times to stir them up to the contemplation of the divine life. And that's just a fraction of what God does. God is always at work in our trials. And David is in a trial, and David is remembering how gracious God is to him. What a gracious God that even he wastes nothing. He doesn't even waste our trials. He's at work in the midst of our hardships, doing all of these things and many, many more. In the midst of those times, God wants us to cry out to him and confess our sin. Look at just verse 4. It says, As for me... This is David. He's, he's quoted this principle, right, of the one that he knows how good God is. And now he says, as for me, I said, Lord, be gracious to me. He's asking the Lord to be gracious to him specifically. He says, heal me. And here it is, for I have sinned against you. One more time. Fourth Psalm in a row. David just continues to walk through the consequences of his sin. 
and the discipline that he is under for his sin. Notice now he's back to a first person. David speaks of the truth of who God is, and now he's talking about himself. He says, now as for me, Lord, I need you. Now it's my turn. Show me mercy. Show me grace. Heal me. Why? Because I've sinned against you. It's a common theme of these last four Psalms, the consequences of sin. And again, in that, we need to be careful. We can't draw one-to-one comparison ever about that. We can't say that all sickness is caused because I sinned. I'm sick, so therefore something, I must have done something for God to then judge me about. And David cries out and confesses he has sinned to God, and he asks him to heal him. And so should we, church. Another quick point here. God is gracious to those who confess their sin. God is gracious to to those who confess their sin. One fifth century church father put it this way. God will heal you only if you admit your wound. Moreover, you will be cured if you present yourself to the doctor. Confession is the very beginning of restoration to health. He says, you want to be healed? Start with confessing your sin. And we hit this a few times over the last couple weeks, but a lot of times we kind of skip that step, right? A lot of times we just cry out, God, make the pain go away. Whatever this is, get it away from me. Stop the pain. And we gloss over the fact, we skip the fact that, God, I'm a sinner. We go right to God, stop the pain, and forget, God, forgive my sin. One author notes that David prays, pardon my sin, not take away my suffering. Now, to be fair, we're we're more than free to pray for God to take the pain away. That is fine. But it doesn't make any sense to do that unless we first realized our own sin. There's an order here. We have to deal with the source of the pain first before we just take away the pain. Calvin, once again, helps us to to see that if we pray for the pain to stop before dealing with our sin, here's what happens. It actually inverts the natural order of things. Those who seek to remedy only for the outward miseries under which they labor, but all the while neglect the cause of them, acting as a sick man would do, who sought only to quench his thirst, but never thought of the fever under which he labors, and which is the chief cause of his trouble. Calvin says, you're putting the cart before the horse there. If you're just praying for the pain to stop and not addressing the sin, you're you're out of order. And that's what David's been saying too, and that's the first thing he says again. I confess I have sinned to you. It's apparent that David is on his sickbed. Why? Because he sinned against God. And he's under God's discipline for that. Not sure what, but David's been slogging through the consequences of sin or sins for the past four chapters now. If we wander into sin, church, God, as our loving Heavenly Father, will discipline us. He will bring us back. That's, the, that's what a good parent does. They're not just going to let us wander off, right? And God, like a good, loving Heavenly Father, brings us back. And sometimes there's discipline involved with sin, and sometimes it's not very fun. But we have to remember, church, this is discipline, not punishment. Is discipline, not punishment. David isn't being punished here. If we're under God's discipline, we're not being punished. Because why? Because all the punishment for our sins has already been poured out on the cross. 
That's why. <clears throat> Throat is going on me today. Thank you, my sweet. Because all of our sin has already been poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ. There's literally nothing left because Jesus took all of our punishment. And so when we sin and when we feel God's hand of discipline on us, remember, he's not punishing you. He's disciplining you. He's growing you. He's changing you. He's shaping you. There's no punishment left. Jesus took it all. Sometimes that discipline is physical sickness. Sometimes that discipline is emotional, psychological, or soul sickness. Depression, fear, worry, anxiety. What is he doing? He's getting our attention. He's sending us these soul flags for us to deal with. But ultimately, we know that God is gracious because he's given us Jesus Christ to forgive those sins in the first place. When we confess, we must remember that those sins have already been graciously forgiven by Jesus Christ on the cross. We could go to many, many passages in the New Testament, but maybe one uh, that summarizes it well is Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We've we got to remember this, church. We've got to remember when we do confess our sins as Christians that Jesus has already paid the price. The forgiveness has already been poured out on us. So why would we not then go to our Father and deal with the sin that's already paid for? We need to remember that. God is gracious to us when we confess our sin and ultimately only through Jesus Christ. He washes us. He regenerates us. He renews us. And again, the exact sin is not specified here, but David is also up against others who then turn on him. Let's get back to our psalm in Psalm 41 and look at verse 5. He says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and when will his name perish? When one comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity, he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me, whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. And if we pause there, we see David has enemies. And they're talking about how much he's down for the count. They're saying, oh, King David is sick? Cool. Do you think he's going to die? I hope so. Maybe he'll die soon. They're taking bets. Maybe there's a when is King David going to croak pool going on somewhere Yet they come to visit him, and then they say empty words. They're like, oh, David, we hope you feel better. And then they walk out the door, and then they're like, I don't know if he's going to make it through today. That would be awesome if he died. They talk about how awesome it is that he's sick, and with any luck that he will die soon, and his whole family will be forgotten. Contrast that to the first section, right? You see his enemies and the ill will that they are speaking about David, and you see the first three verses of this psalm where it's all about the graciousness of God. What a contrast that is. They pretend to care, and they go out and they gossip, and they say, that's it. He's not coming back from this one. 
It's even worse because it's not just David's enemies. It's David's, even his David's, David's closest friends that have turned against him. Look at verse 9. Is that even my close friend in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, he's lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, here it is again, be gracious to me and raise me up that I might repay them. He says, my closest friend. I mean, we used to go to Chipotle together all the time. Now he's the one who is raising his heel against me. It's this weird Hebrew idiomatic thing. It's like if you're, if you're planning to attack someone or you're crouching down, your heel is up, you're ready to go, you're ready to pounce on them, right? I thought some of you would appreciate that. Even his closest friend has turned against him, has betrayed him, and joined the We Hope David Dies Tomorrow Club. Maybe some of us know the sting of a betrayal of a close friend. Yet, yet, what does David do? Does, does he form a new group of friends? Does he form this coalition against his old, former, now fake friends, and he wants to go out against them? No, he cries out to who? God, the only one who can help him, and he knows it. So he cries out to God. Verse 10, he says again, as he did in verse 4, be gracious to me, God. Oh, Lord, raise me up so that I can repay them. Which you might think, okay, well, that's a little weird. He wants God to make him better so that he can go out and obliterate his enemies. And, and before we think that this is just vigilante vengeance here, we've got to remember who David is, right? David's been called a man after God's own heart. He's seeking to repay his enemies for their ill will towards him. But it's likely that David the king is only thinking of God's justice, not his own justice. Because why? David could dispatch men to go kill these guys instantly. He could just snap his fingers and a squad of guys, special forces, would go and wipe them out. But he wants to do it the right way. He wants to do it God's way. Because he's not just interested in personal vengeance. He's interested in the justice of God. And so I'll say it this way. God is gracious to those who seek God's justice. God is gracious to those who seek God's justice. And I intentionally added God's justice in there to make sure that we differentiate that from our justice. Because again, God is the very definition of justice. Anything that is just is a derivative of God's perfect justice. We are not perfect in our justice. Our society is not perfect in their justice. And so our justice is stained with sin. And likewise, when we're sinned against, or in this case, even betrayed by the, our closest friend, we probably have our own ideas of how justice should be working, right? When you're driving home, you know, you have to have that argument with your friend or whatever, and you're like, I should have said this, I should have said this. Oh, if I said that, that would have been awesome. And you think about all the ways that you can get back at this person. That's not God's justice. That's your vengeance. Because our idea of justice is stained with sin, and God's cannot be stained with sin. Instead of taking matters into his own hands as David the king, David calls on God for grace, and God gives it to him. One commentator puts it like this. At first glance, it looks like David is vowing to take private vengeance against his enemies, but the psalm makes it clear that David is conscious of his role as king, as the godly leader of the nation, thus an attack on the king is in effect an attack on God himself. And David vows to stop God's enemies. And so what about us? 
What about when we are down for the count and our enemies, our opponents, they take delight in that. They gossip about how our life is currently a raging dumpster fire. And what about our friends or those that we once thought were our friends? Betrayal is, is a special kind of pain, isn't it? And you know what, church? God gets that. God understands that on so many levels. Remember Jesus. Remember Judas, one of the 12, betrayed him into the hands of his enemies. What does Jesus himself tell us to do with our enemies? Luke 6, 35 tells us this. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And more than that though, church, we all betrayed God. Every single one of us. We are born into this world. Our default state of being born into this world is what? A betrayer, a rebel, an enemy of God. That's our default state. And what did God show us? Mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one person will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good reason one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were, watched this, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, and now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What? Where's the justice in that? Think about that for a second. Where's the justice in that? We rebelled against God. We're his enemies, and he just dies for us and grants us pardon. In church, we've got to remember, the justice is on the cross. All of God's wrath for sin was poured out on his son. There was justice done, perfect justice on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. We were his enemies, and we deserve that judgment but it fell on Jesus Christ instead. And he judged his son in our place. He poured out his wrath on Jesus, so that as Romans reminded us, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, once his enemy and now seated at his table. That's where this is going. This is God's justice. We've got to remember When we're in the position of being mocked or betrayed by our enemies, right, or people are maliciously acting against us, because let's face it, that's, that's slander and malice is what's happening right there with David. When people are acting against us maliciously, we need to remember to call out to God because God knows exactly what that feels like times a billion because we did it to him. God is gracious to those who seek God's justice. And so where does this leave us? David brings us once again to worship of the glorious God. Look at verse 11. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity. 
and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. David renews his confidence in God. He says, by all this, he knows that God delights in him. That sounds a little dicey, right? I know that God delights in me. It sounds a little prosperity gospel-ish, right? God delights in me. Like I have the DNA of a winner and victories in your future. Like it sounds a little, you know, but it's not. Because he knows that his enemy will not defeat him. Why? Verse 12, you have upheld me. Why? Because of what? Because of my integrity. And you set me in your presence forever. Is this, is this workspace salvation? But I did my part, God. Now I know that you're going to do your part. Remember me? I did it. I was the one who showed mercy to everybody else. Remember? Just, you know. No, it's not workspace salvation. It's confidence in who God is. Our Hebrew word for integrity also means purity or innocence. Not that David is without sin here, because what's the whole point? He's in sin. He's being disciplined for his sin. That's why he's on his sickbed. But he is acting in good conscience, in good faith, after he is convicted of his sin. We can never manipulate God. We know that God doesn't change like shifting shadows or he, does never, he never lies, right? We know the character of God and his law and we, up, we know that he upholds those who walk in integrity and purity and innocence towards him. This is all over the Psalms. Psalm 7, 8, David exclaims, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. <clears throat> Psalm 25, 21 says, David's prayer is for integrity and uprightness to preserve him. And in Psalm 26, 1, David says, Vindicate me, O Lord. Why? For I have walked in integrity. I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Is David saying that he's done those things perfectly? No, we know that. He's being convicted of sin right now. But what he does is he keeps bringing himself back to the character of God. It's his inner ethos. It's, it's what sets his heart. He sets his heart and his mind upon. Whatever is going on in his heart, he is focused on God's graciousness. We can't manipulate God, but we can have confidence that God will act and defend us. God is for us, church. No matter how many times we fall into sin, no matter how many times we get knocked down by his discipline, we have to have this, I will get back up and I will glorify him. God is for us. Maybe I can sum it up this way. Integrity is required to call on God's grace. Integrity is required to call on God's grace. All of these things required David's integrity. He showed grace to others. He confessed his sin. He cried out to God for justice on his enemies. That's all integrity. David had integrity and he knew it and he had confidence in that. David had the resolve that no matter how many times he was defeated, no matter how many enemies came at him, no matter how many friends would betray him, he would get back up and he would trust God. David had an awareness of his own sin. And he also had an awareness and a confidence in the restorative, gracious hand of God. Not that God would do whatever David wanted, right? He's not snapping his fingers and saying, God, remember I did that for you. 
He's not the sky fairy. He's not just going to give us those things because he owes us one, but that God would be gracious in all of the ways that God is gracious. But what do I need in order to call on that grace? David tells us this morning that we need integrity. We need to be legit. We need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, church, who we are in Christ. There's got to be firmly cemented in us. John Piper calls this fighting like a justified sinner. Man. Piper calls this fighting like a justified sinner. And here's what that means. Yeah, I'm going to get defeated. I'm going to get betrayed. I will have dark days. I will have anxious days. I will have sickness-filled days. But if you are in Christ, you are a blood-bought child of God, and that changes everything. So laugh at me all you want, enemies. Mock me all you want. Gossip and slander and wish ill will. But you know what? I have fallen, but I will get back up by His grace. I will get back up because that's my God. I will get back up because it's not just me that I'm going to pull myself up out of, out of this muck in the mire myself. I will get back up because I am one of his kids and he is going to pull me back up. That's the integrity that David is clinging to. I will confess my sin. I will own the consequences and I will throw myself on the mercy of God, Jesus Christ. And church, we, we've got to get a little bit more sometimes of that spiritual swagger right? A little bit more of that holy boldness, a little bit more of what we sang in And Can It Be. Bold, I approach the eternal throne, and I claim the crown that was won for me through Christ my own. That's what we have to have. That's the integrity, that integrity that says, I'm getting back up. Why? Because God's hand will lift me up, and you know what? I will continue to trust him, for I know who he is. That's spiritual integrity, and that is what's required to call on God's grace. And where does that leave us again? Worship. It leaves us before the throne of God in worship, like verse 13 tells us, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. We quite literally, church, trust him with our lives. Where can we grow? Where can we grow in this spiritual swagger, this boldness, this confidence? Where can we grow in spiritual integrity? Where do we need God's grace? And are we walking in the integrity required for Him to display it? It's not works-based salvation, right? But if we're not living the life that He's called us to live, what does that say for when we call out for God's help? There's, There's so much to be said there. David says, I know this is my confidence because I know who God is, and I know my heart. Are we walking in the integrity required for him to display it and display his grace? Because integrity is required to call on God's grace. Let's pray that we can walk in this. Let's pray that God will do these works in us and that he would display it for his glory. Father, we thank you for this psalm, for the encouragement that it is, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to walk in this spiritual integrity in all of the ways that your Holy Spirit works to convict and grow and teach and change us, Lord. 
We pray that we would accept and we would work with you in those things and you would receive the glory. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.